I'm unhappy and I want a divorce. Those were the words a close friend of mine recently had to hear from his wife. <clears throat> After 10 years of marriage and then having a few kids together, she decided that she wasn't happy and she wanted a divorce from him. So he pleaded with her that they could work out their marriage. She reluctantly agreed to go to a few counseling sessions. But after those counseling sessions, she decided, I'm done, I'm unhappy, and I want a divorce. My friend, he's a good guy. He has a good job, he has always had. He's committed to their kids and spends time with them regularly. And he's a good husband. I've known him for almost 20 years, longer than she has. He's always been faithful to his wife. He's been committed to his wife and their, their kids. He's a kind guy. He's the kind of guy that if I had a daughter, I would want somebody like him for my daughter to marry. But marriage is hard. And anyone that tells you it's easy either is lying or hasn't been married very long. And the fact that marriage is hard is proven by my guess that if you're sitting here, either you're the child of a divorced parents, or you've been through a divorce personally, or someone very close to you has been through a divorce. And that topic of divorce and marriage comes up here in the book of Malachi. In our series in Malachi, we've seen the issues that God has with Israel. They were offering, in chapter 1, they were offering defective sacrifices to God, and God didn't like that. Chapter 2, the priests were not doing their duties and not fulfilling their call to God. But here, today, we're going to look at two problems that are related to each other. Spouse selection and marriage dedication that Malachi talks about. See, the men in Israel were selecting spouses from people outside the nation, which was a problem, and they were divorcing their current wives. And after we look at that, we're going to wrap up our time together looking at some principles for starting and keeping a marriage commitment. So let's look at this passage today together. And just as a reminder, I'm using the New American Standard Bible is the one that I'll be reading from. Um, but I know some of you like the NIV, so I'll reference that a couple times because there's some, uh, quite a few differences in a few of these verses that we'll look at when we come to them. So I'm using the New American Standard. I'll reference the NIV because um, I know a few of you bring that with you to church. Or if there's a different version you bring with you each week, you know, let me know and I can try to incorporate that in future weeks as we look at the passage together. So here in verses 10 through 12, we have problem number one that God describes, which is spouse selection. And God gives this principle here in verse 10 that we have one father that originally created us and originally gave us one spouse. Verse 10 reads, do we not all have one father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously each against his brother so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? See, it's one God that created us in the book of Genesis. And when he created us in Genesis, he gave Adam and Eve for each other. One man, one woman brought together by one God. And not just in marriage, but God also formed Israel into one nation at Mount Sinai, which is likely what he's referring to here. And now when it says, why do we deal treacherously? 
I think we need to define that term treacherously because we don't really say that one very often. The dictionary defines treacherously as guilty of or involving betrayal or deception or likely to betray trust. So these people are betraying God and what they are doing. And that's described here in verse 11 where the problem is described. Judah has violated God's covenant by violating the marriage covenant. Verse 11 says, Judah has dealt treacherously and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. So here God places the blame squarely, and he labels the people. He calls them Judah, Israel, Jerusalem, and Judah. This was the nation that God had called to be his special group. That's Israel, kind of the big, the big description of them, Israel. Along with the country they lived in, that's Judah, and then the city that, they, that was their capital, which was Jerusalem. He's being very pointed in who the guilty party of is. So it might be like a parallel today if he said, you Americans, that are, that's the nation, that live in Washington State, which is headquartered, capital city of Olympia. Maybe it's kind of a similar way uh, we could be addressed, and that's how God addresses them here, saying, talking to Israel, Judah, and to Jerusalem. And after that general description of treachery in verse 10, and pointing to who was doing the treachery, Malachi now moves on to identify the exact problem at the end of verse 11. It says, For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign God. Now, this is a problem for two reasons. One, because God had told the nation of Israel that they were his chosen nation, his kingdom of priests, his unique people, and that through them, through the line of Abraham, this Messiah would eventually be born. So that's a problem because if they start intermarrying with all the other people of the world, it would disrupt that line of which the Messiah was supposed to be born. That's the first reason this is a problem. The second reason is that if an Israelite who is supposed to loyally follow God marries someone from another nation that has a bunch of other gods, that could turn the Israelites' hearts away from God. And oh, by the way, we've already seen this happen in the Bible with Solomon and his wives or with Jezebel, okay? So that's the second problem there. So as you can see, marrying a person from a different race really wasn't the problem. It was not even illegal. If you think about the book of Ruth, Boaz marries Ruth, who is a Moabitess. She's from the, the land of Moab, but she was a believer in Yahweh, so it was okay that they married. So it was the religion of that person that's getting married that was the problem, not really necessarily the ethnicity that's described here in verse 11. And then in verse 12, God describes his punishment for the people for doing this. He says that God will punish everyone who has wronged him and his covenant in verse 12 saying, as for the man who does this, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob, everyone who awakes and answers and who presents an offering to the Lord of hosts. See this grave sin brought a clear rebuke from God on the men who were doing this. 
And it's the very man that does this that will get punishment and a rebuke. It says here, even the one who presents an offering to the Lord of hosts. So just because that guy showed up in the temple and tried to give sacrifices wouldn't cover the sins that he had been doing at home. And when it says in my translation, everyone who answers, everyone who awakes and answers, that's a way of describing all of the living people at that time that were doing this are accountable. The NIV puts that phrase actually as a footnote down at the bottom as anyone who gives testimony in behalf of the man who does this. So all the people that are doing this are going to get punished regardless of who they are in Israel. So that's the first problem, marriage uh, spouse selection. The next problem is marriage dedication. And Malachi shares this at the beginning of verse 13. He says, there is another thing you do. So this is the second problem. Verse 13, you cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and with groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. So God rejects the people's offerings because they have rejected his commands. Apparently, men were crying and shedding their tears because they learned that God is no longer accepting their sacrifices. But these are tears of hypocrisy, not tears of repentance. They weep because the Lord won't hear them and accept their offerings, not because of their sin. So God responds to them and tells them why he is rejecting their offerings. And that's described in verse 12. I'm sorry, verse 14. You say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. So God tells them he's rejecting their offerings because they're divorcing their wives. And the men challenge the word of the prophet here by asking, for what reason? Their question reveals their heart, that they're clueless. They don't know why God would reject their offerings. The text says, because the Lord your God has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth. This is where Malachi explains their sins. Because of the Lord, who has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth. And that's describing their wives they had when they were young, of their, their earlier lifetimes when they were young men. These are the wives they had had that they had divorced. And it's important because these women likely married young, as they did in that culture, but they got divorced by their husbands by the time they were 30 or even 40 years old. But notice that God is a witness between husband and wife. He knows about the vows they made and how they needed to keep those vows. And Malachi explains they're wrong here. He says, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. And Alan Ross, who has a good commentary I've used to help me study this passage, he describes what did it mean to be a companion during that time for these men that are divorcing them. He says companion comes from the word heveret. That comes from the verb meaning to unite. And the verb and its nouns are used for close associates, partners, worshipers, or even armies, all of which are bound as a unit and share the same characteristics and goals. 
She was not just the wife of his early years and not a servant. She was a partner, a companion. The marriage meant that they were bound together as one in the eyes of God. They shared everything together, griefs and joys, successes and failures, hard times and good times. But now these women were being cast aside like old garment for something new and fresh and exciting, but thoroughly worldly, he says. And Ross takes the position, which a couple commentaries say that these men apparently were divorcing their Israelite wives and marrying the wives of other nations. That's not always as clear as I read it. That's probably not the first thing I would think in the passage, but that's what Alan Ross and some others say, is that these men had Israelite wives that they divorced, and then they take these new wives from other nations going on here. So God reveals that there are some people that have done the right thing in verse 15. It says, but not one has done so who has a remnant of the spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. Here God gives the reason for all this rebuke and this warning. And he gives his verdict here at the beginning of verse 16 saying, I'm sorry, I skipped a point in the outline. We're on verse 15. So God reveals someone that is done right. This is a warning to those in marriage. People must understand marriage's purpose if they're going to preserve it here. Notice the word one here is used three times in verse 15. He says, but now no one has done and that one do and let no one deal treacherously. That word one used three times in this one verse. And then up in verse 10, the word one is used two times. Do we not all have one father? Has not one God created us? See, there is one God that created one man for one woman, and that God said he would be the one father to the one nation of Israel. One God, one covenant, one wife. So he wants one woman for one man. And here at the end of verse 15, we see the first of two commands that are given in this passage where it says in verse 15 take heed then to your spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth this is the command of what they needed to do it refers to the first wife these men had married God is telling them to have a covenant of unity which means not violating the marriage covenant because the nation is one, no husband should seek divorce. Then in verse 16, God reacts to the divorce and intermarriages that are occurring in Israel. Verse 16 reads, God says, For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. Here we see God's verdict in God's desire that no one get divorced. And he makes it clear. He says, I hate divorce. And God's authority is announced here when it labels God as God, the Lord, the God of Israel. See, he is sovereign. He is lawgiver and judge. 
and gives and God gives one of the reasons he hates divorce here in his description of what a divorced man does to a divorced woman verse 16 at the kind of near the end there God describes a man who divorces his wife it's like one who covers his garment with wrong kind of there in the middle a man that divorces his wife is like one who covers his garment with wrong now this is figurative it symbolizes marriage as in Ruth 3 and Ezekiel 16 but covering himself with wrong describes violating the marriage relationship see the garment was supposed to be a symbol of protection but when he divorces his wife it is actually wrong or violence that he covers her with and that's what's done to the divorced wife the NIV probably translates it best and makes it really clear it says the man does violence to the one he should protect that's what divorce does to the woman it does violence to the one he should protect when a divorced man uh, when a man divorces his wife it removes that protection and treats her Cruelly, as described in this passage and then at the end of verse 16 we get the response that we're supposed to have here we're told what to do it says so take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously we're supposed to avoid divorce at all costs God hates divorce and we should hate it too it reminds me of uh, Jerry Jenkins tells a story of when he was interviewing Billy Graham to help him write his biography and Ruth Graham Billy Graham's wife was there and Jerry Jenkins asked Ruth Graham among all the travels of Billy Graham and leaving you at home with kids and marital problems did you ever consider divorce and Ruth Graham said divorce no homicide yes okay we're supposed to avoid divorce at all possible doesn't mean we might not struggle with those feelings but try to avoid it because as we've looked at this passage God's desire for marriage is that a God-loving man marries a God-loving woman and that they stay married until death temporarily separates them that's God's desire for marriage but now as I've taught the passage you might be thinking but doesn't the Bible give exceptions and reasons for why you can get married so which is it can you get a divorce or can you not get a divorce I believe this passage makes a strong statement about God's attitude towards divorce that he doesn't want it to happen but there are passages in the Bible that discuss divorce Deuteronomy 24 that was written before this Jesus uh, talks about divorce and Matthew and then Paul elaborates on those two comments on divorce where they concede divorce and they strictly regulate it but God conceded it and strictly regulated it because of the hardness of man's heart and because of our fallen sinful nature not because God thought divorce was a solution the Bible permits divorce in these situations but it never mandates it and those two situations are adultery and abandonment that are discussed the missionary church which we're part of writes this about divorce and those two examples I thought it'd be good to, to read this to you so you know it's not just me saying these things but also our, our church that we're part of it says since God established marriage as a lifelong union divorce never accords with his perfect will 
Christians should bear with one another, forgive one another, and whenever possible, seek reconciliation to pursue, preserve the marriage covenant. Nevertheless, because of human sinfulness, God has graciously made concessions for divorce in certain cases. When a person is the wronged party in a case of sexual immorality, or when, a, when an unbeliever willfully abandons a believer. The Bible permits, though it never mandates, divorce. And the focus of this passage in Malachi is that we need to carefully select a spouse that loves God, and we need to remain committed to the spouse we have married, which is what I'd like us to focus the rest of our time on here, where I'll give you four principles for starting and keeping a marriage commitment. Because marriage is a commitment, and that commitment starts before we get married. It starts with looking for a godly spouse. Maybe you're here and you're single and you're looking for a spouse, uh, or maybe that's not you. Maybe you can still help instill these principles into someone's life before they meet someone. Because once somebody meets someone and they fall in love, a lot of things kind of get thrown out the window. So the first two principles relate to helping someone find a godly spouse. The last two principles relate to those of us that are currently married and want to stay committed to our marriage. So the first one there, look for a spouse that loves God. So if you're single and, and looking to get married, first thing you should look for is look for a spouse, potential spouse, that loves God. But how do you know they love God? Here's a few kind of criteria that will help you evaluate that. Is there a church community that that person regularly participates in? Does he or she have a Bible that they've opened recently? Does he or she listen to podcasts of sermons as a way to continue to grow in her faith? Does he pray regularly to God? Is he or she in a small group Bible study during the week that they participate in? Does he want to wait to have sex until married? Those are all signs that will help you know if that person truly loves God. The second one there in your notes is listen to godly advice from your godly family and friends. When looking for a spouse, looking, listen to the advice from your godly family and friends. This could be a mom, a dad, grandma, grandpa, good friends, people that aren't scared to tell you that you're making a bad decision. And listen to these people in your life. They're often going to be older than you, more experienced, and can help you avoid problems in the future. Yes, you might be happy right now as you're dating someone, but these people that have lived longer lives than you can help you maybe see some problems and dangers that are going to come down the road that you can't see yet. Okay? So those are two principles for finding a godly spouse. Look for a spouse that loves God and listen to godly advice from your godly family and friends. And this is a parenthesis. This isn't in your notes, but four other things for dating people or people that are single. Four additional things I want to give you. Long courtship, short engagement, live separately until married, and save sex for marriage. Four additional things that as a pastor that's worked with a lot of people, if you could do those four things, will save you a lot of heartache and help you find a godly spouse. So long courtship, short engagement, 
don't live together and save sex for marriage all right those four things date for a long time spend a couple years getting to know each other once you decide to get married get married within a few months don't make it a year and a half long engagement don't live together until you're married don't cohabitate just live separately and don't have sex until you're married that's something to, to share with those of us that are looking for a godly spouse so these last two principles are ones that are needed perhaps now more than ever these last two for married couples and here's why Christianity Today published an article in their July August issue last year in 2021 titled this better or worse the COVID-19 pandemic will leave us with stronger marriages and families. That's what they said in July of 2020. Do you think that trend continued? Because in that article, they showed how divorce rates were declining as a result of the COVID pandemic. Here's an article from August 2021 in the Christianity Daily titled, COVID's impact on divorce rate continues to rise. Because after about three or four months of the divorce rate declining after COVID, it has sharply spiked upwards, as much as 34% as some people have shared. So these last two principles are probably needed now more than ever, because during the COVID pandemic, it's caused increased stress on marriages, being quarantined at home with both parents and kids having to be at home, government rules and mandates and families that don't always agree on those things. Also, researchers have said that stress, anxiety, depression, and suicidal tendencies have all, according to this article, spiked during the pandemic. And that's provided increased strain on marriages. So these last two things to help us start and keep a marriage commitment, live out your faith together. Read scripture, pray, be in a small group together, get a couple's devotional and read that every day for 30 seconds. Read books to help keep your marriage strong. A lot of us uh, we work in jobs where we have to attend conferences, do continuing education, get new skills to keep us sharp in our job. But when it comes to our marriage, we kind of just go with the flow and don't really work on it. We need to actively try to improve our marriages. And we need to be intentional to grow in our marriage, just like many of us are intentional to grow in our career. So that's the first one. Live out your faith together. Lastly, lean on help when you need it lean on help when you need it that might be from a parent from a pastor or a professional counselor don't be scared to ask for help in your own personal marriage asking for help isn't a sign of weakness it's a simply a sign that you recognize you want things to get better and as your pastor, I'm glad to be someone that you can lean on and ask for help from. I'm a little limited because I'm not a trained counselor or professional in that way, but I can listen and talk and encourage and walk you through that process. And there are great organizations, even if you don't feel comfortable talking with someone here locally, like Focus on the Family and Family Life, provide free counseling that they often do by the phone for a certain amount of sessions that you can get those help. But sometimes the best help you might find 
is someone even within our church, someone a little older that's lived life and been through stuff. If your marriage is struggling, I encourage you to get help and lean on them for help. But you might say, my marriage is great, I'm good. Well, that's great. This is your chance to help someone else that's going through that. Look for some signs that couples are struggling. Offer to get to know them, have them over for dinner, and see how you can help them during those difficult times. So four principles for starting and keeping a marriage commitment. Look for a spouse that loves God. Listen to godly advice from godly family and friends. Live out your faith together and lean on help when you need it. So as we wrap up our time together, I hope you've seen from this look at Malachi 2 that God's desire is for all of us to be married to one spouse. One God created us, one God fathered the nation of Israel, and God gave Adam and Eve one spouse for each other. He designed us to have one spouse. That was God's plan from the beginning, and it's still his desire now. But we live in a fallen world where sin has corrupted marriage. Abuse of alcohol, drugs, gambling, poor work-life balance, emotional abuse, physical abuse, verbal abuse, neglect, and many other sinful habits often harm God's original plan for marriage. With that said, I want you to know that God loves you. If you've been through divorce, there are consequences you probably have to deal with, but if you ask for God's forgiveness, he will forgive you. What happened in the past is not as important as your commitment and devotion to him right now. And you're here at church, now spending time with him and his people. That's what's important. And he loves you and will care for you regardless of your past. And in my experience, the people that normally are at church hearing this type of a message are the victims of that abuse and to a divorce that they didn't want or initiate. Probably 90% of the people that hear a message like this that have been through a divorce often are the victims of that divorce and have been wronged. And that's why I want to encourage you, those of you that have not been married yet, or those of you that know young people that aren't married yet, help them pick that godly spouse. Regularly tell them that they need to find a person that loves God and give them advice about how to find that person. And when they do find that person, affirm it. Or if they start dating someone that doesn't match that criteria, pull them aside, talk to them in a gentle and kind and loving way and let them know about the potential dangers they might have in the future. And for those of you that are here that are married, stay committed and stick with it. Live out your faith together each week and lean on help when you need it. And if you don't need help, if you're doing well, see this as your opportunity to help couples that need someone to lean on during their difficult times. Because God hates divorce. He wants us to select a godly spouse and commit to marriage. Let's pray. God, thank you for allowing us to open uh, your word and see what it says about marriage about how we need to select a godly spouse and how we need to be dedicated to our marriage that we're in. I pray for these folks that might be looking for a spouse or meet people in the future that you would help them evaluate. Um, who is this person? Do they love you? Do they know you? Are they following you? 
as well as those that are married here, as the past year and a half have provided, given increased strain on marriages, we pray that you would uh, help them make it through these difficult times, that they could pull through it and stick together and get help when they need it. And even, Lord, as we're about to have communion together, we pray that you would prepare our hearts, that we thank you for what you've done for us, in spite of maybe past sins or wrongs we've done, whatever that might be, that you have provided forgiveness for whatever that might have looked like. And what a great way to be reminded about that today as we participate in the Lord's Supper in communion together with each other. Amen.